As you know, climate change is about to wreck everything we care about, and our governments are too slow. Today, we talk about how to make our governments work better and hurry up. Let's dig in. Welcome to the Human Survival Podcast, where we aim for world cooperation on critical threats to humanity. This show is offered by the Human Survival Project, a grassroots movement for citizens around the world to push for transformation of the United Nations. Our global threats need global cooperation because no nation alone can manage them. Here we have honest conversations about overcoming climate change, destruction of nature, pandemics, nuclear weapons, advancing technology, and other catastrophic threats. But this is not all doom and gloom. We talk solutions here. We can solve this mess humanity is in. We just need to be smart and do the work. To survive, we must see ourselves first as citizens of the human race. To thrive, we must protect what is beautiful about humanity. This is urgent, so let's start. Hi friends, welcome to the Human Survival Podcast. I'm Shelby Murtis. Thanks for joining us. So I have not been with you in a little while, uh, which saddens me, but it's for a very good cause and there's been amazing things happening with the Human Survival Project. Um, it pretty amazing work is happening and it's thriving and that's been consuming my time. So at the end of this show, I hope you listen in. I want to give you an update on all that because it is really quite exciting. Um, things are moving. But right now, I want to have a conversation with our fine guest, James Jilka. And what I want to talk about is basically how we go through this green revolution that is starting, which is dealing with climate change, um, which, as you know, could wreck just about everything we care about if we don't manage this quickly. Um, there is so much government activity that is required in order to uh, build infrastructure and new green energy and the electric cars and the transit and the everything else that has to be redesigned in society. And we need to consider um, how can our governments best manage this transition and how can they be efficient and smart and get this done quickly. So that's generally what we're going to talk about today. And with us is someone who has good expertise and background to all of this, and he's just wicked smart, and he's a nice guy. So we're going to have an interesting conversation. James Jilka is a natural resource specialist with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. His work puts him at the nexus of flood risk management, recreation, and natural resource management. He began his journey toward environmental justice when he left the corporate world to embark on a solo hike of the Pacific Crest Trail. Since then, he's worked as an environmental policy analyst for the state of California and as a science teacher in underserved communities. He's passionate about issues of environmental equity and sustainability, which inform his daily life, both at home and at work. James, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's an important thing you're doing, a good conversation we need to be having. 
Yeah, excellent. I'm so happy that a mutual friend introduced us recently. And, um, you know, we had a chance to chat a little bit and get to know each other. But um, there's a lot more I'd be interested in learning about you and, and your background. And here we can do that now. Um, and our friends can listen in. So... Um, I know that you worked for the state of California for a while, um, helping to enable some of these good green um, innovations that are needed. Can you tell us more about what your job was there? Where did you work and what did you do there? Sure. I worked under the umbrella of the state treasurer's office uh, for an organization called the California Alternative Energy and Advanced Transportation Financing Authority. It's kind of a mouthful. It's, uh, I'll refer to it as CAFA for short. Um, essentially, what we did is we offered uh, tax incentives for certain industries to either locate in the state uh, or expand in the state or invest in technologies that we felt would be of particular uh, environmental and economic benefits in the state. So specifically, we were looking at um, environmental benefits of advanced transportation, be that electric cars, um, hydrogen fuel cell technology. Uh, we also looked at alternative energy sources such as biofuels, um, solar arrays, um, and then advanced manufacturing, which essentially just means any manufacturing process that is more efficient in terms of its use of resources. And so my job as the uh, lead analyst for a little while on that program was to oversee kind of a pot of $100 million of tax, uh, tax breaks uh, that we would give out to corporations as long as they met uh, a, a benefits test um, for the state of California. Mm, nice. That is very important work. Uh, <laughs> we need a lot of that. You know, when, when I first learned about your work there, um, you know, something I got to thinking about was some recent um, reading and listening to one of my favorite journalists, um, Ezra Klein, at the New York Times. And he's been talking a lot lately about how, um, you know, his take is that the environmental movement is sort of needs a change and an update right now. Because for so long, it has been focused on stopping the bad things from happening. You know, stopping the gas pipelines, stopping that polluting factory, stopping the deforestation or whatever. But right now, as we deal with climate change and we need all of these new things built, like, you know, the green energy, like the infrastructure, the transit, you know, the all the stuff you were working on creating, now the environmental movement needs to pivot toward pushing the good things to happen, you know, and, and making all that building happen. And, and that's sort of a reorientation for a lot of people to think in that way. Like in order to save ourselves, we need to push that to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I just wonder what you think of that idea generally. And, and do you think we're making that pivot quickly enough or are we still kind of caught on our heels and not really focused in the right ways? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the short answer is no, we're not moving fast enough. I think we're seeing that 
um, with all the headlines that come out about you know meeting or hitting exceeding new benchmarks for uh, you know global climate change. You, you see the catastrophes that are happening seemingly every week around the world that are uh, fueled by or exacerbated by human-caused climate change. And, and you can't help but see those things and say, we're not doing enough uh, quickly enough. Um, now that said... Darn, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. This is, this is going to be a downer. I don't have good news for you. But, uh, no, I get it. Um, I mean, generally, I'm optimistic. Uh, I, I am. Um, but I do think we need to be realistic about the function of government here. Um, government, at least here in the U.S., is so bogged down in both in bureaucracy, but also in uh, kind of a swamp of funding um, you know, dark money flowing into these campaigns and, and um, special interest groups who have the ears of politicians. And that all translates into how these programs are either developed or overseen. And so for my part, what I saw as a policy analyst in California is when the program worked, it could work really well. You know, it incentivized the right people to do the right things at the right times. But you would also see how you had to always look at the optics of everything you were doing because there is a state representative somewhere who has a pet project and they want to push that through regardless of whether it is really the best thing for the people of California, the people of the world, the environment, whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, and so while I, I do agree in some ways with Ezra Klein, I think there's a caveat there, which is, we, we don't want to cut the brakes. You know, we don't want to move too fast um, because as we've seen, and as, as in fairness, he recognizes in some of his articles, you know, that has led to a lot of the problems that we're in today. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you mentioned some of these, um, I don't know, political influences that get in the way of the right thing happening. Um, I mean, it, you know, as you did your work there, I imagine great stuff happened, but then were there other priorities in the mix that were not really about environmentally, environmental goodness? I mean, other, um, stuff people were trying to get out of that activity? Sure. Absolutely. And I think to give an example, and I, I won't be able to speak specifically to the companies that I worked with, but um, mm -hmm. suffice it to say it was a well-known electric vehicle manufacturer. If you look at the benefits test uh, just for the environmental portion of an, of an electric vehicle uh, construction thing, it really doesn't, doesn't meet the needs um, of our current moment, of our climate crisis. And the reason for that is because, A of all, we don't have a grid that can handle all these electric vehicles. We don't have battery technology that is sufficient to the task of um, our current system of highways, you know, and the current layout of our cities. And even if we those two things weren't a problem, you still have to overcome the issue of 
mining the minerals for the batteries, manufacturing the batteries, transporting the batteries. And then where are you getting the electricity that is going to, um, you know, refuel those batteries? Is it coming from a grid that is primarily burning fossil fuels? If so, then your electric vehicle really, the benefits of that vehicle are negligible at best. Um, and not to mention there are all kinds of things we could get into the weeds on, like what is the weight of the vehicle? You know, it's typically going to be a heavier vehicle with a heavy battery in it, uh, which means you're going to go through tires more quickly, which means more tires in the landfill. You've got a safety issue. Uh, if a heavier vehicle gets in a car accident, you have more fatalities. So, that, you know, you start to dig in. And I think this is where some of the, the frustration with bureaucracy comes from is you start to dig into these issues and you learn, well, it's not as simple as just, you know, a, a celebrity billionaire out there saying, I'm going to save the world with this shiny new technology. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the sense I get about a lot of this work is that part of, part of the challenge is managing the complexity because so many things have to happen at the same time for us to be successful. And um, some people are not smart enough, um, unfortunately. You know, some uh, bureaucratic agencies are not agile enough. You know, you might have multiple agencies that have different pieces of it, you know, different environmental aspects or different job creation aspects or different economic aspects or different zoning or different funding or, you know, you end up with so many agencies involved that it's just hard to manage that and get it to all, you know, gel in a good mm -hmm. way because it's just so damn complicated. You know, it is. Um, are, do you see ways around that? I mean, do you need to get different people involved? Do you need to get more people involved? Is it more funding? Is it better computer systems to like integrate? Is it like, do we need artificial intelligence to figure it all out for us? Like what, you know, all, what do we do? All of the above and then some, um, yeah. you know, part of the problem is we, are kind of predisposed to look for a simple solution to our problems. That's what we want. You know, we want a simple narrative with a simple solution. We want a hero to come and save the day. I mean, it's out there in Hollywood. You see, you know, the Marvel movies, you, know, you see the Tony Stark coming out and saving the world with technology that borders on magic, you know, and that's what we want. Um, if only we had Tony Stark, we would be all set, <laughs> wouldn't we? <laughs> Yeah, if only, uh, only we had him, but although I think if that came along with some of the other characters, maybe, maybe not so much. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, the problem is that a lot of the solutions aren't, aren't sexy. They're not fun. They're not shiny. They're not new. We have a lot of the solutions already. We just have trouble implementing them. And I'll give you one example. Um, in California, while I was working uh, as a policy analyst, we had a very difficult time figuring out how to deploy rooftop solar on a broad scale because there's a huge percentage of the population that is renting. So how do you get a homeowner, a landlord, to put solar panels on a roof when that benefit is going to accrue to the tenant and not to the landlord? You know, 
you've got to find a way to incentivize that. Even though we know it's the right thing, we know that technology is going to help take some of the pressure off the grid. Where is the money going to come from? Um, you know, you just can't can't convince the typical landlord to spend fifteen thousand dollars so that their tenant can have a lower utility bill. Um, mm. And part of that is messaging, right? But part of it is we haven't done a good enough job of of um, advocating on behalf of the climate and advocating. Uh, that people have a responsibility to do their part. Um, and in part, it, you know, people are strapped. It's a tough time economically and landlords aren't immune from that either. You know, it's a, it's hard, it's a hard pill to swallow to be told you need to put rooftop solar because, you know, we're worried about this thing that is coming. We can see it coming, but it's not here right now. You know, mm. it's, it's kind of, it gets deprioritized. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and this is maybe what causes uh, economists and some activists to look for a big brute force way to make everybody do it, like a carbon tax or a heavy subsidy of green energy. You know, just like across the board, the economy, like we're just going to make energy expensive so that you have to do this now and you have to figure it out. Um but I know that is not a complete solution because it still has to get figured out. You know, you still have to figure out how to get the landlord to put the solar panels up. But um, I mean, are there policy solutions like that that would just offer bigger incentives and bigger motivator to just make people figure it out? Uh, so California has done a little bit of that. So um, in terms of mileage standards for vehicles, um, you know, California is a huge market. And if they say that these mileage standards must apply to all new manufactured vehicles, then you're going to get the attention of all the major manufacturers. They're going to start manufacturing to California standards, even if in other states, that's not the case because they can't afford to lose that market. And I think that that is, uh, it is possible. Whether it is desirable, you'd have to bring in an economist and you'd have to bring in a politician and you'd have to talk to a round table of people who you know, know more than I do. Um, but I think a, a, an easy first step is to start charging what things actually cost. And by that, I mean, you can't, subsidize the cost of a hamburger by artificially keeping corn cheap because that has repercussions down the road, both in terms of the health effects on our population, but also in terms of climate, because now we have, uh, you know, much bigger carbon footprint in terms of our um, agriculture, uh, our CAFOs and all that, you know, um, you have to, you have to price that in, you have to say, okay, we can't just, make beef artificially cheap. We can't just make oil artificially cheap by subsidizing oil industries. Um, we can't make sugary products that we know are contributing to our health crises and putting a strain on our, um, on our hospital systems. We can't keep those as cheap as they are. We need to price in those additional costs. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very much um, the kind of 
um, relationship I'd like to see between government and the economy, where we could just have kind of a basic concept throughout that you make the bad thing more expensive than the good thing, just across the board, you know, and and that can drive innovation because you know so much of the problems we have is that it's just cheapest to destroy the environment to make a little more profit or to make your product um, more affordable compared to the other company. You know, it's not always just greed and like bad people being bad. It's just sometimes people are stuck in a competitive economy where if they don't cut a corner and hurt the environment, their competitor will and will sell a cheaper product and make more money and I'll be screwed for doing the right thing. You know, if you don't have some kind of government intervention to um, undo that dynamic or change it, it's just going to continue, you know. So you have to sort of tax the the um, environmental harms or at least not subsidize the bad stuff, you know, like you're saying. Uh, right. And part of what we did at CAFA was try to incentivize the good. So on the flip side of that. You take projects that are trying to do the right thing by putting solar panels on their um, manufacturing plant or investing in biofuels. And you say, okay, we're going to help you out by giving you a free pass on your sales and use taxes. And that little margin may be enough to help them be competitive in the marketplace. Um, and that's what we really need to do. We need to start being smart about what we're incentivizing. Because we can, you know, we do incentivize, we do uh, provide a, a whole heck of a lot of, um, of handouts to large corporations. Um, for example, to go back to the you know, corn, we're subsidizing corn. Um, in order for those farmers to make a profit, they have to have those subsidies, first of all. Second of all, they have to use the pesticides, herbicides. They have to use uh, these kind of like factory farm methods so that we can keep meat artificially cheap. Now, if we want, if the goal is to keep those farmers in business, we could subtly shift what we're incentivizing. We could say, okay, we're going to give you those subsidies so you can survive and thrive on your farm. But rather than just incentivizing you to grow corn wholesale, we're, we're going to say, you got to use cover crops. You got to reduce your pesticides and your herbicides by 20%. You've got to uh, reduce your water usage. Um, you do that and, and you're going to see a huge difference, you know, not to the farmer because the farmer is still getting those subsidies, but that's going to make a large improvement to um, at least that sector of our economy. Mm -hmm. So basically the government can still give supports where needed to farmers or companies or whatever, but make them earn it, mm -hmm. you know, make them do the good things in order to get that subsidy the good things that help all of us. You could sort of get more bang for your buck by having those types of requirements if you're going to receive subsidy. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think you can yeah. take that same approach to some of these large-scale uh, construction projects that you were talking about. You know, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that the government is the right entity to be taking on these construction projects. I think that's part of the problem because I, 
Not a huge fan of unregulated capitalism. <laughs> I will say one thing capitalism does well is it innovates and it, it finds efficiencies because if all you care about at the end of the day is the almighty dollar, you're going to find the best, quickest, most effective way to make that happen. What government's role should be in that process, in my opinion, is providing the guidance, the regulation, and the incentives, and in some cases, financial supports, to get these corporations to, to factor in more than just the dollar. You know, the dollar is important, but we also need to talk about human thriving, you know, the health of local communities, the health of the environment, the health of the world around us. And so I think that that is where I would like to see government go rather than taking on these construction projects and trying to push them through faster. Mm, yeah. Well, that you're describing a mix of incentives and supports and guidance that government offers. Have you seen times where that has worked really well, where government has gotten that mix right and saw something happen in the way that we want? Or is what you're describing pretty cutting edge and we're not there yet? I think it's doable. I think we're seeing a lot of promise in the um, public-private partnership kind of zone. I think that these public-private partnerships are fairly new. Um, it's kind of a marriage between the oversight uh, of government and the innovation of private businesses. Um, and I think, you know, to use an analogy, it's like these private businesses are the engine and the government is the brakes. It's there to make sure we don't go off the road. It's there to make sure we don't make disastrous decisions. But otherwise, it's that corporation that's going to drive, uh, drive things forward. I have mm -hmm. seen some successes in that. I've seen um, biogas projects out in California. Uh, it was kind of like... A, slam dunk every time they came through the door you'd have a dairy farmer who would be interested in capturing some of the um, some of the methane some of the gases that would otherwise cont contribute to climate change um, and to use a biogas digester to make fuel out of it um, that's kind of just a no-brainer um, our role was kind of just hands off you tell me what you want to do We'll check your numbers, make sure it looks reasonable, and we'll give you the incentives you need to make it happen. Um, so it, it you know, can work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious um, if you saw cases where um, government bureaucracy just got in the way too much of like allowing good things to happen. And, and I'll share maybe a little anecdote from my past. I used to do um, public policy work on affordable housing. And it amazed me how governments, um, it, just too much bureaucracy was making housing expensive because it was difficult to build housing, just any kind of housing, because you've got local zoning, you've got state permits, you've got some federal permits. A developer has to go to 15 different agencies to get permission to do something. And those agencies might not agree with each other. 
And so, you know, you get through this whole process and then an agency makes you change your plan. And then you got to go back to the other agencies and get approval again. And then if you combine the funding sources and they, you know, conflict with each other, it's just, it becomes a mess and it requires so much staff and consultants and money to get anything built. You know, some of the projects you're describing are even more complicated than housing. You know, they're, they're big. It's a big chunk of land. It's got infrastructure required and you have a workforce working there. And it's like, I imagine some of these projects just sort of like get crushed under their own weight of all this complexity that you have to deal with. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, yes and no. Uh, what really happens from my experience is those with wealth and influence will get their projects pushed through because they can wait it out. They can hire consultants. They can get lobbyists. They have a high powered corporate attorneys. You know, they can afford to go through this process, not to say that the process is great or that it's working, but they can afford it. And what we see is that the little projects, the individual, uh, you know, the, the contractor who wants to build a house for, you know, his daughter-in-law or, you know, the small scale entrepreneur who wants to, you know, build a small manufacturing plan. Uh, they're the ones who are really going to suffer here and it's going to perpetuate this wealth gap and this opportunity gap that we have in this country. Mm-hmm. So uh, to get back to your point, yeah, I think that bureaucracy really can be a problem. Um, especially when you have multiple agencies involved. I don't think it's necessarily unmanageable. Um, What we need is, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, we need one additional layer of agency. Uh, You need one agency that is going to coordinate all the other agencies or one person who's nominated from those uh, interested parties to oversee that project. In the state of California, we had uh, a team called GoBiz, and that was essentially the governor's um, inner circle of policy advisors for business. And they had no problem with reaching out to any organization, any any agency invest or involved in a project, and facilitating that pro- that process. Um, that was what they were there for. Uh, not to say it was a perfect system, but something like that can be at least an interim fix for some of these intractable problems. Yeah, yeah. Just basically coordinate it better and, and sort of hitch them together in a tighter way, you know, so that those agencies are actually coordinating their actions instead of just a developer getting bounced around from place to place. Mm-hmm. Make the agencies integrate. And and align their their processes, you know. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. If you get these, you know, you set up a board uh, with representatives from each agency, and they sit down in a roundtable and they just go through project after project for you know four hour session. They can jam it out really quickly, you know. But it's mm-hmm. getting all those interested parties to sit down in a room that can sometimes be like pulling teeth. Uh, mm-hmm. Fortunately, in my experience, that was actually quite easy uh, because the process we went through once we did the means test uh, is we 
called in a representative from the um, utilities commission, from the treasurer's office, from uh, finance department, and they were the ones who got final say over project approval. So I would mm -hmm. do my means test. I'd come up with a recommendation. I'd present it to the board. I would allow the representative from the company to speak on their own behalf. And then, you know, you have these people from these different agencies there in the room um, and they, they would yay or nay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. You know, that kind of integration we're talking about, I'm seeing another sort of need that's maybe you might call it vertical integration, where it's like the municipal town level and the state and the federal government, because they each have different requirements or, you know, for instance, if you're going to get something built, you have to um, satisfy local zoning. Um, you know, but then you might need state funding and then you might need federal funding and, and each of those governments has different requirements. Um, do you think those levels are aligned as much as they need to be? Or sometimes does that make for lack of coordination? Yeah, there's certainly not. Um, and part of that is lack of communication. Part of it is partisan issues. You know, if you are you know, if you're in California, you're obviously in a relatively blue state um, with state government that is firmly blue. If you're working with a federal level that is red, happens to be red at that time, you know, that can create some tensions. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that that does become a little bit of an issue. Um, I think some states do a better job of working that out than others and some municipalities better than others. Uh, for example, here in Connecticut, we all use the international building code. So if you are from out of state, if you're from another country, you know exactly what to expect in terms of the building codes that you're going to be held accountable to. Now there still are local zoning regulations. You know, obviously that's never going to change because every location is different, but there are areas where we can say, Hey, there's an international code for this. So let's just do that. You know, and, and this goes back to kind of what your kind of meat and potatoes is. If you have a UN model that is able to sit down and come up with some of these higher level uh, codes and guidances that can be adopted all the way down to the municipality level, that is going to streamline a lot of these things. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's, there's potential there, but um, whether politically it's feasible, that's, that's another question. Yeah. You know, another sort of international layer that I've been interested in is, you know, if we had better agreements internationally on climate change, better than the sort of voluntary Paris Agreement thing that might work, might not, because nobody's enforcing anything. But if you could really tighten that up so that, say, the United States, for instance, would know that it could take the risks necessary and spend the money necessary on all that we need and know that China will and know that, you know, other countries will and, you know, not feel that they're going to take an economic hit for doing it because everyone's doing it. It sort of levels the playing field and everyone has the same incentives to do it. 
rather than say one country or one state or one town going all in on climate solutions and spending that money without knowing if it's actually going to work because the rest of the world isn't. Right. You know, it kind of changes the incentives if you have a stronger international plan and everybody knows that, okay, if I do it, they're going to do it too, mm -hmm. you know? Now, do you have a sense for what the enforcement mechanism looks like? Is that like um, economic sanctions or to, what, what would that be? That would be a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I don't claim to have all the details worked out. But I think the world does need a system of economic sanctions that can um, enforce this kind of thing. I mean, it, you know, it was really interesting after Russia invaded Ukraine um, and many, many countries exerted economic sanctions on Russia. Um, and everyone was kind of surprised how everyone rallied together in such unity to do that. Um, I think everybody maybe realized what's possible with economic sanctions, but that was done in a very ad hoc way. You know, it was just in response to this thing happened and they cobbled it together and, and it's still imperfect. But if the world took those kinds of tools and really unified them in a planful way so that, you know, a country, if we made a tighter agreement, if it does not meet its, um, carbon reduction uh, goals, then they know, all right, well, it's going to cost us some money if we don't meet our goals. So we better meet our goals, you know? Right. Um, and that's the kind of thing that forces everybody to stay in line and keep doing it together. Or else, you know, economists call this a free rider problem, you know, where one particular country might say, you know what, it's not worth it to follow through and do what we're supposed to do because they might not, you know? Um, and I can just go along and the whole world will maybe do their thing. But, you know, there's just not the strong incentive to do it because there's no penalty. There's no harm in being a free rider and just flaking out and not following through, you know? Right. So, right. yeah, I mean, those I kinds couple... of. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Um, uh, yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, one is, in my opinion, I think the U.S. and and other developed Western nations need to just, regardless of whether that agreement comes together now or in the future or not at all, need to just move forward. Uh, mm -hmm. We have we have benefited from the use of fossil fuels far more than any other nation on Earth, and it is just. It's only fair. It, it is our responsibility, our duty to uh, do right by the rest of the world, you know, and, and mm -hmm. whether everybody else follows our lead or not, that's, you know, kind of, hopefully, hopefully they do. And we can still work towards that as a whole. But I, I do think it's important that we have a mindset shift in this country uh, away from the kind of, um, I don't know, this inward looking um, you know, concern only for yourself and, and think more on a broader global scale. Um, so I, I would say that the other thing I would, I would say is we, we also want to be cautious about how do we incorporate disadvantaged nations into this in a way that empowers them, uh, gives them the support that they need 
um, and doesn't put us in a position where it's essentially a new form of colonialism, right? Because we don't want to end up saying these five countries are the biggest and strongest and most powerful. They're going to levy the economic sanctions. So they're going to kind of really twist everybody's arms. And, and meanwhile, here's a country over here that, that is developing and has been, uh, you know, kind of uh, has been colonized perhaps, or just hasn't had access to resources and, and is just trying to feed its people. And here you've got, you know, the Western world coming in and saying, okay, well, here's how you're going to live your life. Right. So like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you get buy-in um, in a way that is equitable to those nations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's important. Well, and maybe in that mix could be a recognition that climate change is not our only existential risk. You know, it it interacts with other problems in the world. So even poverty itself, I consider an existential risk because poor countries um, cannot solve climate change if they can't afford solar panels, or we can't fight pandemics if poor countries can't afford basic health care, you know, or poverty is a major driver of migration which will greatly intensify with climate change as much of the world is too hot for people to live or grow food or have water. You're going to see the poorest people in the world on the move in a way that could be right. destabilizing if we don't manage it, you know, or poverty is a driver of warfare, which is now so technologically powerful that it can be destabilizing in a way that previous warfare was not, right. you know. And so, you know, you can't just impose these solutions that make poorer countries poorer or stay poor. You know, mm -hmm. you have to let them grow their economies and feed their people and have jobs and all that good stuff or else all these other things happen. So, right. You know. And I think that's where we, we have to be cognizant that we can't let perfect be the enemy of good. You know, there, there is no one size fits all solution. It's going to have to be on a case by case basis. And we need to be a little bit less precious about our, our pet, you know, our pet, you know, hobby horses. Um, a great example of this, I don't know if you've ever listened to the Rich Roll podcast. He's a, a vegan ultra athlete and um, he does a lot of things in the um, animal welfare space. Um, and he did an interview where he went out to this farm that had taken um, a plot of land out in California that was kind of overworked. The soil was dead, essentially. Um, and they kind of took a more holistic ecological approach to farming. And in the end, they restored their soil. They were able to retain more water. They weren't as impacted by droughts. They were able to grow more crops in a smaller space. It was kind of just like a nice heartwarming story. Um, and they did a documentary. So he went out and he was interviewing them and he got a lot of pushback from his viewers who were saying, how dare you? You're a, you're a vegan. You know, you can't talk. These people are murderers and this is horrible. And I think and maybe this is mostly a first world problem. It, it's hard to listen to that and, and take these people seriously. I mean, this is by any objective standard, an improvement. So let's take it, you know, it may not be where you would like us to be right now, but it is a step in the right direction. 
And similarly, to go back to our point about developing nations, if they need to use fossil fuels for the next decade, for the next 20, 30 years, in order for them to catch up to the rest of the world, I don't know that we want to go in and say, nope, we're off fossil fuels now. I think there are other solutions that can be put in place to offset those those, um, emissions. And so I think, you know, this is uh, kind of part and parcel of our conversation about why government sometimes fails is because it's got, you know, this is the regulation by the book. It's going to go through the proper channels. And if it needs to go back to the beginning, it's going to go back to the beginning. And so often, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in, in, we do need to allow poorer countries to keep using fossil fuels a little bit longer and keep their people fed and keep their economy straight and all that, which means really to survive, we need wealthier countries to move even faster, cut back even more, and be incredibly vigorous in doing this um, far more than we are so far. Um, you know, which points to all the things we've been talking about and, and streamlining and moving faster. But um, wealthier countries also just need to cut back consumption. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just need to consume less. I mean, part of what's happening here is that um, I notice what looks like people thinking that we can simply keep living how we live and replace all our energy with solar panels and wind turbines and we'll be fine. But when our overall energy consumption is increasing, we're chasing a moving target. It's not like we just have, you know, steady energy use and we just replace it. It's like our economy keeps growing, our energy use keeps growing, our consumption of everything keeps growing. It's hard to just replace that with the good thing when we have to keep more, 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 more. I don't know how we're going to chase that moving target and actually win unless we can find a way to cut back a little bit. I mean, I'm not talking poverty. Just can we at least stay where we're at for a little while? you know, instead of more, more, more. And um, I'm not sure yet (laughs) it's going to work. I I think this is um, where we kind of stray away from. I mean, I I think government has a role to play here and I think businesses do too, but I think we stray into more of a, an ethical, uh, you know, the the domain of the philosophers here. Cause I think what we really need is a, a mindset change. I think that our, our country since the 80s has kind of had this neoliberal capitalist ideal of you can go as far as you in you can go as far in life as your dreams and your hard work will take you and at the same time we're pushing that message and this is not just reagan this is every president since then has said you know because it's aspirational it sounds good you know you can go to college you can be anything you want to be you know you can go as far as your dreams will take you at the same time we're pushing that notion, we're also undercutting some of the structures that that are the bedrock of our society, the the extended family, you know, in favor of a nuclear family, um, unions in favor of gig work. We're undermining the things that hold us together. And so 
when we talk about you can go as far as you want, well, what does that mean? What are we, how are we measuring it? If we don't care about the family dynamic, if we don't care about social cohesion, what's left? It's money. It's money is the only thing left that we can measure and, and prestige, you know, especially in, in an era of social media. And the problem is you know, money is just a tool. So no matter how much people get and no matter how much people spend, they, they're still not going to feel totally fulfilled. And we've got this system that says, okay, well, I've got something else to sell you then. Maybe this will work. And so we just keep buying and buying and buying, hoping that it's going to fill a hole that it, it is not an economic hole. It's, mm -hmm. it's an issue of, of value, a sense of value for yourself and a sense of purpose in your life. Um, mm -hmm. And that is something that cannot be addressed by neoliberal capitalism or, you know, an economic system generally. Mm -hmm. Well, in that lack of social cohesion that you describe, it's like you're on your own. So really, you better make a lot of money so that you have a buffer against insecurity and, you know, there's no safety net and you're on your own. So you need a little nest egg in case something happens because nobody's going to look out for you. And, mm -hmm. and that does drive a focus on making income and making money and, and make it any way you can, usually mm -hmm. by creating and selling a problem, a product that people don't actually need, you know, yeah. consuming stuff to do it. So, and my hope is that, you know, in a pie in the sky world, that artificial intelligence might drive us in a productive way. Um, it's pretty clear to me, and I think a lot of smart, smart people, much smarter than I have, have noted that we're, we're going in a direction where AI is going to make a large portion of us obsolete in terms of the workforce. And if we don't have a traditional factory style nine to five job that is giving us a paycheck that we can use to kind of justify our existence and our, our self-worth, well, where is that going to come from? And where I'm hoping we go, rather than just, you know, kind of keeping the poor poor and, you know, pushing them under the rug and not thinking about it, um, I'm hoping that we as a society move more towards uh, a value system. Okay, so you're not going to make money, but you're going to make value. How do you do that? Well, maybe you want to go and clean up at the local park or volunteer at the animal shelter or become an assistant uh, volunteer teacher in the classroom, or you're going to write poetry, you know, whatever it is, and that we're going to value people based on how they're contributing to society, and maybe even give them a, a basic universal income to do it, you know, because a lot of our needs are going to be met by artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and a lot of those uh, observers of the tech world predict that we some of those companies running AI and, and similar technology will earn some of the biggest profits ever in human history. Like this could be really dramatic economic growth that happens. And instead of just enriching a few people and companies, we could redirect that through taxation toward a universal basic income or even, you know, just paying people to do jobs that society needs. Mm -hmm. So all the people that get um, automated out of their 
crappy job they hate creating products that nobody needs, they could be instead employed um, fixing up our inner cities or cleaning up nature or planting forests or cleaning up polluted rivers or, you know, really, you know, caring for the elderly or caring for children. You know, these unmet needs um, they could be engaged in that would be far more satisfying and it would be meaningful and people could be excited to go to work because they're doing something mm -hmm. good for others. Right. You know, that's the kind of thing that could be enabled by this technological transition, you know? Yeah, and I may add to it one more thing. People would have free time on their hands to be citizens. You know, and right now we have this cratered out um, sort of empty shell of a democracy where people don't really fully participate, often because they don't have time. They're just like on the rat race, doing that job, trying to pay the bills and take care of the kids and whatever else. They don't have time to be a citizen. So this sort of transition we're describing might free up so much time for people to actually be engaged in their government and make it work better, you know? Which, yeah. you know, in and of itself is going to vastly improve our economic situation. I mean, I think one of the arguments that I commonly hear against being proactive in terms of the climate crisis is because oh, it's too expensive. You know, we can't afford to change. And I'm thinking there, there are opportunities there. There's more money to be made in solving these problems than in hiding ourselves under, a, under the bed and, and, you know, trying to ignore the problem. I mean, the technology that we will be developing to address these climate issues um, is going to be astronomical. Um, and I think that, you know, <clears throat> if we can kind of redirect the conversation um, when we get this, these kind of impasses where, you know, one side screaming, we've got to save the whales and one side saying, we got to save the coal miners jobs. And, you know, if we can calm down our rhetoric and have a rational conversation, we say, Hey, look, coal doesn't last forever. It won't last forever. There's only a finite amount. If we can get support and job training to transition you into something else you're passionate about, then not only do you benefit, but the environment benefits as well. And those conversations just aren't happening as much as I would like. You know, what we get is something like the Green New Deal. And rather than a rational discussion, we get people screaming about they want to take your hamburgers away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is really tricky. You know, this actually reminds me of a point I was going to make earlier, but then we went into other um, good topics. But, you know, there is this sort of liberal conservative divide in the United States, at least, that gets in the way of good things happening. And, um, you know, earlier we were talking about regulations that sometimes help, but sometimes impede the good things that we want. And there is so much need for better coordinating the different agencies and levels of government. We need regulation to work better in a way that sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's clumsy and stupid. And, and that's why there's um, a large part of the population, usually conservatives, hate government, 
want to strip away regulation because they're like, government sucks. It's always in my way. Just get rid of it all. Just drown government in a bathtub and, you know, get it out of my way, which is not the solution for so many of the things that we need. It seems like liberals and Democrats could win big in elections if they leaned into streamlining regulations to work better. I mean, it would appeal to so many of those people who hate government and hate regulations if we could simply find ways to make it work better, you know, not have it be clumsy and get in the way, have it actually allow the good stuff happen, you know, and, and conversely on, you know, among conservatives who are often anti-regulation, maybe they could win over some liberals by instead of just trying to get rid of all government, they would lean into making government work better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it seems like there should be some kind of middle ground here instead of just two sides fighting about it and oversimplifying it, you know? So, yeah, I, I think the lately it feels like the, the political dynamic is more, uh, you know, what sound bite can I find that is going to, you know, enrage my base um, and get them motivated to come out and vote, right? Like, so the problem with focusing our campaigns on something as common sense and necessary as regulatory reform is that you have to get kind of really into the weeds in order to talk about what and how and who's going to benefit and who's going to bear, bear the brunt and how are we going to ensure that deregulating or streamlining regulations isn't going to have some of the um, negative impacts that we've seen in the past. But that's a long conversation. And mm -hmm. the average voter, as you mentioned, is in the rat race and is struggling to make ends meet and is already getting fed a diet of vitriol from whoever their news outlet is. Um, and so they really just want to hear the soundbite, that person's evil because mm -hmm. they want to take your jobs. You know, so I think, you know, part of this we need to look at is how do we have public discourse and what do we consider, you know, news you know, when I was young, I remember news was a news anchor who came on and just told you what happened that day when I'm not that old. So it's not like it's that long ago that this was a thing, um, but it seems like anymore, everything is punditry. It's, you know, if you want to hear opinions from the left, you go to MSNBC. And if you want to hear your opinions from the right, you go to Fox. But where are you getting news, actual like this is what really happened today. It's, it, you know, it's kind of a rare thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in this um, divide between the complexity of government and the average voter and their ability to understand it, you know, sometimes somehow we need to bridge this. Mm -hmm. And, and it seems to me, it highlights the value of advocacy organizations and nonprofits that do this kind of work, you know, like the one I used to work for years ago and the one I'm starting now. But, um, you know, a lot of people are, are asking themselves and each other, okay, what can I do to help? You know, and a lot of citizens just feel very isolated and alone and powerless to do anything about this big, enormous stuff. And I often tell people, find an organization you like 
and support them. Mm-hmm. You know, volunteer for them, donate money to them, you know, um, and just lean in because really us as individuals can't do much of anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to rally together if we're going to make anything happen in pushing our government. But those kinds of nonprofit advocacy organizations have the expertise to understand the complexity within government and then explain it to us in a way that we can understand. Mm-hmm. You know, they can act sort of as translator um, between citizens and um, government complexity speak. Um, and, and they're just critically helpful. And I just, I want to see more support for those kinds of organizations, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, when you look at where we're spending our dollars um, in America, at least, and you think about how much money goes into, uh, say, our military, for example, um, you know, more than last I checked, and this could be, could be old data, but last I checked, it was 10 times, or excuse me, as much spending as the next 10 nations combined. And it really says something about our priorities. You know, we could be taking some of that money and we could be putting that towards, um, you know, funding these advocacy groups, giving grants, you know, we could be uh, providing more relief aid to foreign countries. And I know that can be a hot button issue for certain segments of the, of the political spectrum, but let's be realistic here. If we don't start putting our money into these developing nations, they're going to be knocking on our door and we're going to be dealing with it over here, you know, and it's better to keep people in their native homeland where they have ties, they have family, they have history, they have pride and to give them the ability to do so, you know, and support them if they choose not to. But, you know, for the large part, I think we want to enable people to build healthy societies where they are you know so whether we can get to a point where we put our money where our priorities are or rather shift our priorities so that we are you know funding something other than you know putting out fires um, Mm -hmm. constantly yeah yeah one i don't mean to toot my own horn too much but you know the the work that i'm doing lately is trying to help people understand interconnectedness globally, because we do need wealthier countries to support um, good things to happen in poorer countries. You know, that redirection of resources is critical to all of us surviving. But, you know, a lot of people see it as charity. Like, I don't want my money spent overseas for those poor people because, you know, we have needs at home. Um, is what people say. But us dealing with these issues as a globe, as a world, as humanity is critical to all of us surviving. Like none of us makes it if we don't solve these problems. And so there's really a self-interest argument for all this stuff. You know, like you say, if you don't want the zillions of um, migrants showing up at your shores, you better deal with some of this. Or if you don't want the next pandemic to show up at your home, you need to deal with some of this. <laughs> you know, if you don't want the next World War III, you need to deal with some of this. You know, um, there's a self-interest argument there. So um, there is. We'll see. Um, you know, but we're working against biology here, right? So 
it, it's pretty well documented in the scientific literature that we are geared towards, you know, tribalism, at least from an evolutionary standpoint. I mean, it, it's, it's, I think what the hundred people that are closest to you, that's, that's about as many as we are hardwired to be able to naturally care for. Beyond that, it, it, it's kind of like, yes, I can care about those beyond that, you know, immediate family or kin group, but I care about them less because they are more distant from me. Um, not to mention somebody who's, you know, across the world has different political beliefs, a different religion. It, it's just biologically speaking, we're at a deficit here. And I don't want to paint a bleak picture because we've found ways to counter biology or to co-opt biology. We do it in marketing all the time. I mean, that is part of the problem that got us to where we are is that marketers, you know, hijacked biology to convince us we need stuff we don't need and have done that for decades. Uh, you know, so maybe another potential for solution is how do we hijack biology to make people care about those they can't see, those that mm -hmm. aren't right in front of them or immediately related to them? You know, there's there's got to be ways, you know, but we just don't, mm -hmm. there's no profit incentive there. So we don't mm -hmm. do that research. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's where um, governments come in, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it, it, life is so complex that it's hard to leave it to the individual to keep making perfect choices all day. You know, even just going to the grocery store and trying to buy food that's responsible. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it was made. I don't know how they did it. I look at this package. There's 50 ingredients on there. I don't know where they all came from. It's just that's just one example mm -hmm. of me trying to be responsible. Combine that with like trying to keep track of the whole world and, and that it just, you need systems for that. You need to build it into the way business is done and the way the economy works. Um, but I guess you need the individuals as citizens to support that process and understand the need for it. So. Right. And that's where we also get frustration with bureaucracy, right? Is that some of those things are built into review processes that are, are opaque to us. So, you know, to us, it sounds great. I, I should just put, you know, get a, get an electric vehicle. Like it just, it's easy, right? That's the thing that's going to save the world. And behind the scenes, you got to calculate, okay, well, what, where are those minerals coming from? and what's going to power it. And, it, you know, just in the most recent heat waves in California, they were asking people not to charge their electric vehicles because the grid couldn't handle it. So these are things that somebody has to think about. And it's not something that we all have access to as consumers, you know, because we're busy. We've got other things going on. Um, so it's good that somebody's thinking about it, but it can get frustrating when you're like, well, why haven't we made progress on this? Um, well, and I with, cannot build an electricity grid. Right. I, I just, I can't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. that takes a system larger than me to get that done. So, you know. Right. And, and, you know, that's kind of my job now is working flood risk management. So these projects built by the Army Corps of Engineers, these big dams, you know, there's, there's good arguments to be made both on both sides of of building these dams or not having them. You know, you, you have people who 
would not be able to live where they do now were it not for some of these major projects. You've got hydropower that is a necessary component of fighting climate change. Um, but then again, you are altering natural ecosystems. You are disrupting fish habitat and, um, and migrations. You know, so there, it's not an easy cut and dry answer. I wish it was. Um, that's where I think, you know, we do need to be a little bit more flexible in how we approach climate change because we don't, we don't want to solve the problem of climate change and make people miserable while doing right. Like that's not the goal. The goal is, is for people, humans and animals and ecosystems to thrive. Mm -hmm. And that's going to take some compromises along the way on both sides. And, and that's just a, it's a hard fact about complicated systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll just dive in and do our best. You know, it's all we can do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did, did, did we solve it? Did we win? Yeah, we totally solved it. We totally won. <laughs> okay. St Tony Stark is here. Okay. And um, just nailed it. <laughs> great. I'll, I'll look for it. But I, I do want to, I do want to say I am optimistic. I mentioned this before, but I think um, humans, uh, you know, have an immense ability to, problem solve. And uh, the technologies, like I said, they're there. We have them or they're in development and will soon be there. It's just, honestly, it's conversations like this that need to be happening more often in more public squares uh, to get people to connect the dots and say, oh, I get it. If I want to, to you know, change this, I need to be you know, I need to be proactive about finding these resources that already exist. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I also believe that this is possible and doable. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here talking. I wouldn't be doing this work. You know, I believe it's possible. That's why I'm doing the work. So, mm -hmm. right. well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, I wonder if there's any last thoughts that we didn't cover or anything um, on your mind that we didn't hit yet. Well, you know, I think at the beginning of the conversation, you had mentioned we would wrap up talking a little bit about how do people push government to streamline mm -hmm. or to do more. And I think you hit, on, you hit on it a little bit with your, you know, advocacy groups, you know, you support an advocacy group, find one that is, that matches your passion. Um, we don't all have to do everything. If your thing is animals, you know, go look at the SPCA website. If your your thing is carbon footprint, check out um, Citizen Climate Lobby, who are advocating for common sense um, carbon tax and dividend policies. You know, so I think that's a big part of it. I think uh, you know, getting people out to vote and helping people get out to vote. You know, being involved in that grassroots organizations like that um, is important. And and I think. Um, trying to be respectful of people regardless of what their life choices are. And I know that sounds kind of just like cliche, but I think a big problem we have is people are promoting to levels of incompetence, especially in bureaucracies, because our only way of judging, engaging 
our self-worth and a large way that we kind of, um, we self-medicate for some of the, you know, the, the emptiness that we feel from lack of connection or lack of engagement is buying things. We need more money. We need more status. And so we, in order to do that, to get that status, to get that, you know, prestige, we've got to promote and promote and promote. So you can have the, the best, uh, you know, sanitation worker in the world, the best janitor, the best nurse, the best teacher. But if they want to make more money and get more prestige, they've got to become a manager of other uh, sanitation workers, a manager of other teachers, a manager of other, you know, food prep workers. And so they move up the chain until they are no longer happy with their job, no longer good at their job. Um, and this is especially prevalent in government where you have, you know, you have ranks, you know, moving up through the, in my case, the federal government, you move up through the GS scale, right? And so you hit the top of your GS scale or whatever scale it is. And you say, well, I want to make more money because I need to buy more stuff. I'm not satisfied okay, got to go take this other job that is not necessarily a good fit for me. And I think if we can all take a break and just show appreciation for what people do well, for when people are clearly enjoying what they do, just stop and say, thank you. They don't have to be a veteran. They don't have to be a teacher. They don't have to be a police officer or a firefighter. It could be the janitor who, you know, you know, loves their job, loves what they do. So say, thank you, you know, make their day a little bit better, make it so that people don't feel like they need to break the bureaucracy just to, to you know, buy the next thing that they don't need. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Well, everyone has a chance to just lean in right where they are in their mm-hmm. life, in their community, and, and do some good things. So, well, James, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for coming to do this with me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, this is really interesting. I learned some things. Well, thank you, Shelby. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I look forward to talking with you again. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Um, And as promised, I want to just give you a couple minutes of update about the Human Survival Project and what we've been up to. Um, I'm thoroughly excited. Uh, This summer, we have about 15 um, young college interns volunteering their time to help with this work. Um, I came up with the idea to do this a couple months ago just because I've been doing this work of this show and also trying to form a new organization. Um, largely by myself with a couple people pitching in here and there, but it's been exhausting to be honest. And it's time to turn this into a team effort. And so I came up with the idea to do this and had never done it before. Um, and I put out the word online, just hoping I might find a couple people willing to, you know, donate some time and help out. I ended up with well over 200 applications. We might be at almost 250 right now. Um, I'm just floored by the response of so many young people. I interviewed a ton. I've ended up with these 15 or so who are some of the brightest, most talented, most inspiring people I've met. And I can't believe that this summer I get to work with them. 
Um, and so the plan here is to make a series of several videos that describe the Human Survival Project, the existential threats that we face, the um, usefulness of a much stronger United Nations in order to solve these threats. So if we can um, package that in video form, it'll be much easier for um, you and others out there to digest these ideas and get to thinking about it. We'll also be setting up a lot of um, social media and starting to push that out into the world. Um, updates to our website so that it can become more of a place of learning about these issues. We'll do a lot of writing this summer, a lot of research. Just really this whole thing that we've started really beef it all up and, and kind of launch this. So um, the launch pad is prepared and I'm just thrilled by what's happening here. Um, yeah, I, I can't believe that I get to work with some of these amazing people this summer, and I'm just so excited about what we're all going to create together. So I will be having updates for you soon um, about what transpires, and um, should be pretty exciting. So with that, thank you, dear listeners, for joining us, and I will be talking with you soon. Have a great day. Hey, wait, before you go, I need your help. It's small, but really important. Simply listening to this show is great, but doing things and taking action is way more powerful. This is not just a podcast. This show is the voice of a very ambitious grassroots organization, the Human Survival Project. We must transform the United Nations so it's strong enough to manage our global catastrophic threats. Making change happen on this ambitious scale is only possible when people participate and work together. So please, like and subscribe to this show, or leave a comment. You know how this works. With likes and subscribes and comments, you're telling the computer algorithms that you care about this show. So the algorithms will then recommend this show to other people. This is how we grow and reach a bigger audience. And this growth is really important for a global grassroots movement trying to improve how the world operates. We can't do this alone. We need you. Beyond liking and subscribing, here are three other ways you can help. One, share this show with a friend, person to person. A growing audience powers this cause. Two, come to our website www.thehumansurvivalproject.org. Three, at the website, sign up for our email newsletter and keep up with our progress. I promise you'll like what you see, and it'll help you talk to your friends about what must be done to protect humanity. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for listening, for helping us grow, and for speaking about these important issues with everyone you know. Have an outstanding day. I'll talk to you soon.